What's up, church? Oh, awesome. Let's try that one more time just for my own satisfaction, okay? What's up, church? Hey, we're grateful for the Lord and all that He's done. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, I want to start with uh, a story that I heard several years ago. Uh, there was a, a couple, and uh, they had fallen on really hard times. And matter of fact, there was a gentleman, and he was uh, a little bit older in age, uh, but um, he'd gotten sick and uh, ended up having to, to really lead into even an early retirement because of his sickness and his health just wasn't in good shape. And during that same time where he was off of work, his wife ended up passing away. Uh, and it just seemed like life was stacking up against him. And circumstances and, and struggles were just really difficult. And I know that like many of us in this room, we hear that we can relate in some way that you just know that when life gets hard, you just look and you wonder about, is God good? And you question the validity of His grace. And you wonder so many times, that what is He trying to teach you? Well, in the midst of all of those things, uh, this gentleman was driving out in, in the country uh, one day. And he saw uh, this church being built in the distance out in the country. And, and for that size, uh, uh, that part of the country, that, that church was really large. And so he drove by and he just began to look. And uh, as he drove by, there were guys there that were literally laying stone. And they had gotten all the way to the top. And the very front part of the church leading up even to the steeple was almost done, except for one large rock that was up near the spire, the very top piece. And he hopped out of his vehicle and he just was watching. And he, he saw this rather large stone and these men were just working and chiseling on. He walked up to him and he said, what are, what are y'all doing? Like, what are y'all you know, kind of trying to, to finish? And they said, well, we're actually trying to put that stone way up top in the, that, that part of the spire. But what we're doing is we're shaping it down here so that it'll fit perfectly up there. And in that moment, that man just began to weep. And he just walked right back to his car and he just prayed and he said, Lord, thank you that even in this moment that you haven't forgotten me and that you're actually using all of these things for your glory. And ultimately, Lord, you're preparing me for what's next. And I think that for so many of us, we relate to that story. And even in hard times, we are hoping and praying that God is working all things together for his good and for our good uh, to those who love and believe in the gospel. Well, that's what Paul is, is that's what he's talking about as we kind of run through these last six verses in Colossians chapter one. If you haven't been with us, we're in the middle of a series uh, called Colossians. And so we're literally going uh, expositionally, that's verse by verse, all the way through the book. And uh, today we're going to look at 24. And he says 24 in relation to what he saw in 13 uh, and following all the way up to 23. And so here it is, like you have uh, this invisible God who to see Jesus is to see God, and he is the creator of all things, visible, invisible, and they, he created all things for his glory, for his purpose. And so Paul says, and because of what I've seen in the gospel, what I've seen because of Jesus Christ, he says, I am willing to die for. And so in verse 24, he says, and now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And so, like, you may be here today, and you may be going, okay, awesome, a suffering gospel. That doesn't really sound all that pleasant. But what's interesting is, is that we live in a day and age where we somewhat teach as the church to believe in Jesus is to have a comfortable life. And to, uh, to believe in Jesus means that all things kind of begin to work out 
for you in your life. And so we've naturally kind of gone uh, to the idea of thinking that because Jesus lives in me, then I should have better health or uh, hopefully God will take care of my every need. And so you have wealth and you have um, all of these things that are kind of encompassed in this teaching called the prosperity gospel. What's crazy is, though, as Paul says, wait a second, that's not the gospel that I'm teaching. Because he says right here, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. Meaning, I rejoice in suffering for the namesake of Jesus Christ. Meaning, bring it on. You got me? Like, how many of you are in your Christian walk right now and you're like, Lord, whatever it is that you want me to go through, bring it on? Because that's typically not our thought process. It's not like, Lord, bring it on, shape me, mold me, teach me. Like, that sounds horrific for us, right? Like, we want God's love and grace and His mercy. We want Him to flow down in many wonderful ways, and we want Him to make our life better. And Paul says, no, I rejoice in suffering. Matter of fact, he even tells his uh, brother uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh, awesome. That means I should want to follow Christ. Philippians 1.29, he tells the church in Philippi, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. That's the same idea. If you remember in John chapter 9, you had a man who was born blind, and you had the Pharisees and, uh, and people looking by, but even the disciples of Jesus, they asked a question as they were walking, and they saw this young boy who was born blind, and they said to Jesus, Jesus, why is this boy that way? Is, is he born blind because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? And I love Jesus' response in John 9 because he says it's neither. It was not his sin or his parents' sin that he's born this way. He is born this way so that what? The power of God may be displayed in his life. And oftentimes we look at hardships and persecution and we look at all these different things that go on in our life circumstances, and we wonder, God, where are you? Where are you? And in those moments, it's actually the time that God is shaping us most to look more like Jesus Christ. And so the question is, is are you willing to have a suffering gospel? And do you think that even what's happening in your life really is suffering? I mean, listen to what Paul uh, wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen to what he said about his suffering. He said, I've worked much harder, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own fellow Jews. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger even from false believers. I've labored and I've toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure that I have for all the churches. That makes my life sound like a cakewalk. You know what I'm talking about? And yet he says, bring it on. I consider suffering a blessing. Like, isn't that crazy? You're like, man, did I show up for this message today? Yes, you did. And here's why. You need to be encouraged that in your suffering, in your circumstances, in your hardship, Christ can use that for His glory. And I know that that's so difficult, but He wants to shape us, mold us, move us, conform us, what? Transform us into the renewing of our mind and what? 
our spirit and our bodies for his purpose, for his glory, for Christ Jesus. And he says, I long to suffer for you. I rejoice in that suffering. And then he says, and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And you look at that, he goes, and I fill up my flesh in regards to what's still lacking to Christ's afflictions. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but when Christ died, I thought he covered it all. But Paul says, and I keep going, still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And so it could be confusing as you read that, going, okay, is there something that maybe wasn't completed when Christ died on the cross? And that's not what Paul means at all. Matter of fact, in the word afflictions is a word that you see time and time and time again in the New Testament. But the word is the Greek word, thlipsis. And it never, ever, ever is related to the suffering of Christ on the cross. It has everything to do with the suffering that you may have in your own life and in your own ministry. And Paul says, I keep pressing on in regard to Christ's afflictions. And he goes, I am pleased to serve God and to suffer well because of what Christ has done for me. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9, uh, you see the conversion of Paul. And in Acts uh, chapter 9 verse 5, Paul says to Jesus, who are you? And uh, Paul says, yeah, who are you, Lord? And, and Jesus responds, he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. And so this, the idea here is Paul says, I continue to suffer for the sake of the one who has been persecuted. So meaning this, when Jesus died on the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was cursed, he was mocked upon, he bled, he died, and now he sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father, and he cannot suffer anymore physically for the sake of his church. You got me? Like, it's all been done. It is finished. It is complete. However, what you do see and you do understand is that Christ now is suffering with affliction through his church. Meaning, he is pleased to stand on your behalf when you stand well and suffer well for the cause of Christ. It's the same idea that you see in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is being stoned. And something that is marvelous in that text that many of us miss is that in that, Jesus gets up off of the throne at the right hand of the Father and he stands on behalf of Stephen. You tell me, wouldn't it be incredible that you lived such a wonderful life that even in your death, even in your suffering, even in your persecution, that it got Jesus up off his throne to stand on your behalf? Wow! You mean to tell me that he wants to walk with me in my suffering? Yes! You mean to tell me that he never leaves nor forsakes me? Yes. You mean that he is always there to guide me? Yes. It means that you will never walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you can fear no evil for his rod and his staff brings you comfort? Yes. And so in your suffering, in Christ's afflictions, he, what, longs to love you for the sake of his body, which is the church. Do you understand? And so Jesus feels your pain. Jesus fills your suffering, and you are able to press on. You're able to keep moving. You're able to keep your eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith because you know, in essence, that because Christ suffered well, you can suffer well. Because Christ died, you can die. And you know that he has it all in his hands. And that's what Paul says. Because Jesus suffered, bled, and died, I will gladly suffer too. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that the mark of your life? Because if you ever want to know the mark of a believer, you ever want to know where someone really is in their faith, then you allow some circumstances to change their life. You, you turn up the fire. Because in that 
you'll see the refining presence of God. And they'll either run from the faith, they'll either question God, they'll either defame him and make a mockery of him, or they'll stand and they'll say, in this moment, in this time of my life, it is him who gives me strength even in my weakness. And that was Paul. He says, when I am weak, Lord, you are what? Strong. And so that, my friends, will refine you very quickly. To suffer well is what Paul says is what he was pleased to do. In verse 25, he says, I've become its servant, meaning I become a servant of the gospel. And the idea of servant, really, in the Greek, the best word for it is minister. I'm a minister of the gospel. You know, at like some point, one of the things that we always say in our starting point class is that as you come into the church, that you're a minister of the gospel. Like if you have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, it means you are a servant of the gospel. You're a minister of the gospel. You have a story to share. And it's not your story. It's about what God has done in your life. And so you share your life and your story. Why? By the commission that God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. And so he says by the commission. And the word commission there is the word okonomia. And it's literally the idea of what? A steward. And so Paul says, I am glad to suffer and to be a steward for the proclamation of God and his church, to proclaim his word. And I don't know if you realize what a steward is, but let me explain what a steward is. A steward is someone that when you're leaving on vacation, you go, here's the keys to my house, here's the keys to my car, and here is any money that you need to make sure all of these things are still intact when I come home. Got me? And so you leave your kids behind, you leave your animals behind, and you are literally just saying, please be a good enough steward that when I come home that my animals are alive and that my kids are not locked in the closet and that they are still functioning. Got me? And you go, I am trusting all of this to your care. Got me? That's a steward. And what Paul says, I am a steward of the gospel. I am a steward. Christ is entrusted to me, his care of the church. And which, what is the main job of a steward? It's to feed the animals, right? Remember what he said to Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Well, feed my sheep. And the idea that Paul says is this. He goes, my greatest job as commissioned, as a steward of God, is to present to you the word of God in its fullness. It's to feed the sheep. You got me? He goes, the greatest job I can do is to Preach the gospel to people, to feed the sheep. Make sure they hear and know and understand the message of God's word. You got me? And so he goes, I will suffer well. I will relate to Christ well and his afflictions because I know he's done it too. And I will be pleased to serve God, to be a steward of the gospel, and to teach other people. And he goes, I will lay my life down for that cause. And I don't know about you, but one of the greatest things about the gospel is it doesn't call men to be weak and feeble. It actually calls men to raise up and to be warriors. And I know, like, one of the greatest tragedies in the church is that we presented, presented this feminine gospel that women and children can come and men sit at home and they go, I don't want that baby stuff. But the cool thing is, is the gospel is not baby at all. It actually calls men to die for something that they can believe in. And Paul says, I'm willing to raise up and go to war for the cause of Christ. And men, like, let me explain something to you. This is worth dying for. This is, what, this is worth risking everything in your life for, your job for, everything for, for the cause of Christ. And look, Jesus wasn't passive. He was meek. He controlled everything. He was self-controlled. But, dude, he would outwork us in a minute. 
And he was what? A man's man. He was the king of kings. He willingly laid his life down. And Paul says, I'm willing to do the same as I look at Christ and his afflictions. And so men, listen, listen. this gospel is worth what? Going to war for. This gospel is worth dying for. This gospel is worth raising your children in. This gospel is not passive. We don't need passive men. We need strong men. We need men who are faithful to their wives. We need men who will stand up for something at work and at home and in our society. We need men who are the real deal, who aren't liars or thieves or scandalous. We need men who would say, this is the truth of God's word and I'm going to proclaim it. Man, is that not worth raising up for? Is that not worth dying for? Is that not worth getting excited for? Absolutely it is. Because Paul says, I can relate to that. And he goes, why? Like, why? Have you thought about why? And he says it in 26. Why? Here's why. Because it's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, look at this. I, I don't know if you and I catch this. I don't know if you and I understand this enough. He goes, the reason that I'm willing to die, the, will, the reason I'm willing to suffer well, the reason I'm willing to become a minister, a servant, a steward of the gospel, is because of the mystery that's been made known, that's been hidden for ages. Now get this, like, I don't know if you realize what the church is. Like You and I have played the church card for so long that you and I have missed the power of the church. Like you think, oh, I'm going to church today. Oh, I'm going to go to church today. Or I'm going to take my kids to Sunday school today. No, 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 no. Now, you and I are the church. We're the church whether we meet here or at home. We're at church whether we're in a fancy building or we're in a metal building. We are the church and we are the mystery that's been made known to the nations. So get this. As the church, I want you to understand something. You have something that the Old Testament prophets never had, and that is the mystery of the gospel. Think about this. You read about Noah, and Noah didn't understand the mystery. You read about David, and you think, man, he was an incredible king, and David did not know about this gospel. Hosea didn't know about it. Jonah didn't know about it. Amos didn't know about it. Daniel didn't know about it. You look at all of these Old Testament greats, and they did not get the mystery of the gospel. Why? Because it was hidden for ages, but it is revealed to you as the church. What? You mean that Old Testament greats didn't get it? Yes, I mean to tell you Old Testament greats didn't get it. And get this, Paul even said, angels don't even understand the things that have been revealed to you as the church. They long to look into the things that you and I know about salvation, about God's glorious grace, about his provision to you and I as the church, about a broken people who were once far off from God and now have been brought into his marvelous light. People who were once in darkness and been called into the light. People who were once lost, broken, confused, and now you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people. And the Old Testament saints never even understood it. That, my friends is what's been hidden for the ages. And you go, really? Like it really is hidden? Like the Old Testament saints didn't get it? Yeah, Old Testament saints didn't get it. Matter of fact, in Matthew 13, 11, Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Meaning, there are some that will not have eyes to see or ears to hear. And so if you and I know and have understood the gospel and you know that it's, it's worth being proclaimed in your life, then the bottom line is it should change you. Why? Because you understand the mystery. So here's the mystery. 
One, that God would send his son as the incarnate word, Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's a mystery. That's a huge mystery. 1 Timothy 3.16 shows you that. The unity of the church is a mystery. And you're like, yeah, that's a mystery to me because I've been in lots of churches. No, the unity of a church is a special thing that God is wanting to proclaim through his people, through the church. And you see that in Ephesians 3, 4, and 6. The rapture of the church, that God's going to come back and receive those that what? He calls the church unto himself. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 15. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. That's a mystery. The Old Testament saints didn't understand it. The gospel itself is a mystery. Like, why is it a mystery? Because you and I cannot get to Christ on our own volition. That is not about you and I. It's not about us being zealous people for God. It's not about us being religious people. It's not about us going to church, cleaning ourselves up, trying to get to God. It's about what Christ has done. It is literally about grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a mystery. Many of us even here, we're not, we don't really understand that. We're like, wait, 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 say, you mean to tell me that I don't have to go to confessionals and I don't have to have a priest that gets me to God? No, you don't. Jesus Christ is your high priest. That's Hebrews 4.15. You mean to tell me that I don't need a pastor to get me to God? No, you don't need me at all. Matter of fact, I am merely a man like you, needing God's grace every day. You mean to tell me that, that God seals me for the day of redemption, that I can't lose my salvation? No, you can't lose something you never earned in the first place. It was by God's grace. That's a mystery to the Old Testament saints. They thought that in order to be to God, you had to what? Not only have faith, but that you had what? Legalism. You had external cleansing. You had sacrifice. You had all these things. But all these things were simply positioning the people of Israel to a holy God. You mean to tell me that I don't have to keep the Sabbath every week? Like, I don't have to, like, no, Sabbath is simply God's rest. And it was a reminder to the people of Israel that you need to make sure that you keep things in check. But this, my friends, is the gospel, and it's been revealed to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the gospel. You ready for it? Listen to this. For our sake he made him to know what who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that he might become that we might become the righteousness of God. So he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That is a mystery hidden for ages. And it's been revealed to the church. Colossians 1.27 is the indwelling of the Spirit. That's a mystery to the church. There is no other deity in all the world. Uh, no other world religion ever can claim that their God resides in the person of, that worships them. Buddhist spirit doesn't indwell the believer. Muhammad's spirit doesn't indwell the believer. But Jesus, what, said our spirit, meaning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will indwell the believer. Look what it says in 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles... The glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like one of the greatest mysteries to Paul was that this gospel could go to the Gentiles. Because what did Israel think? Israel thought this was our God. This is, we are the chosen people. And what Peter said and what Paul says is, no, now it's being made known among the Gentiles. That anybody, anybody who would look to the cross high and lifted up could be saved. Anybody, anyone. Like, you mean to tell me that the cross was sufficient for anyone, yes, anyone who would believe, anyone who would confess but with their mouth and believe in their heart that he is Lord could be saved. Anyone. It's, you mean it's sufficient for anyone? It's sufficient for anyone. Anyone who would believe. And so he goes, even for the Greek, even for, uh, even for that American out there, even for that German, e even for that murderer, that thief, anyone who would position themselves before God could be saved. 
He goes, that's the mystery of the gospel. That is what is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Got me? There used to be a, a bunch of old scholars and, and they're, that kind of coined this Latin phrase. And uh, the Latin phrase was a, a thing called, it was called deus absconditus. And deus absconditus meant that the, the revelation of God was, re, was hidden, that you couldn't ever see it. They eventually came up with another Latin phrase called deus revelatus. And the idea of deus revelatus is that you could see God revealed. But what you see in all the scriptures is this, is that Christ is the revealing work of God. He said to look at me to see God. That's what he said. You see in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. No one's ever looked upon the face of God. Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. God covered him with his hand. He said, you can't see me. But now what you see is this, and this is what Paul says. The mystery which is a Christ in you, the hope of glory, the deuce revelatus, the revealed work of God is found in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, you might have thought he was once hidden and unknowable, but now you can know him and see him through Jesus and his work. Got me? Now get this. You don't just see it. It actually lives in you. That's a profound mystery in the church. What? It is Christ living in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Get this. The same spirit that hovered over the waters in creation lives in you. The same spirit that brought uh, them out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land is the same spirit that lives in you. The same spirit that when John recorded it in the Gospel of John, when Jesus said, it's best that I go away, that a more suitable helper lives in you. It is the spirit of God. And he reveals himself to you. Why is that encouraging? Because God lives in you. Why is that important? Because if he lives in you, he changes you. And the most confusing thing about the gospel, the most confusing thing about the church, is that we seem to be powerless. That we seem to walk around as if we understand and know this thing about the gospel and this cross, and yet it never invades our life to the point that it changes us and gives us power. And there are people who walk around and they go, if, if that's the God that you serve, I don't want that God. But Paul says, no, it is Christ in me. It is the hope of my glory. It is the hope of the revealed knowledge of God. It is what I believe. It is what I die for. It is what I live for. It is what I long for. And so Paul didn't wander around hoping to be some religious zealot. He said, I gave that up for the sake of the gospel. He said, I don't want to simply be this religious and academic guy who knows so much about the Jewish legalistic system. He goes, I'll give that up for the sake of knowing and loving Christ. He goes, I do what I do because of Christ living in me. And so in 28, he says, he is the one we proclaim. Got me? So you want to know what it is to live for God? Hey, preach Jesus. Got me? People might want to know a little bit about your story and just, hey, deflect. Get them off your story. Get them off of all the past, all the things, and, get, hey, get them to Jesus Christ, knowing that, yes, he took what I had here, but he's the real deal. He's the thing that changed me. People all, all the time, I have church planters all the time. They call me, they want to meet with me, whatever, and they're like, man, what is going on out there at Stone Point? And I'm like, it's by God's grace that we're growing, and I just keep preaching Jesus. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. Here's, here's our philosophy of ministry at Stone Point. Here he goes. You ready for it? 
I love big burly, yes, record this. You might even tweet this, okay? I love big burly men. Love them. Passionate about them. Got me? I want to get them a hot cup of coffee. I want to welcome them like no church has ever welcomed them. I want them to know that this is a place for them and their family. I want them to know that they can belong, that they can believe, that they can grow up in faith. And I want them to know that Jesus can change their life. No matter how far they think they've gone, Jesus is the hope. And he's the reason that we do what we do. And so what do I do? I'm like, we love people. We love people. And if you didn't get greeted today and you didn't feel loved when you walked in, hey, it is a shame. Please let us know about it so we can resolve it. We want to love you. We want you. We want to partner with you. We want to help grow you. We want to help move your family forward in the faith. And if that's not what you're getting here, then let me know because we have failed you. Because we want to love you and we want to encourage you. And then what do I do? After that, we just preach Jesus. Because I promise you, you won't find any change in me. What you'll find in me is a pastor who's absolutely messed up, and by God's grace, he allows us to continue to move forward. But outside of that, what does Paul say? We proclaim Jesus, and we admonish, and we teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So you get it? This is hard work. It's hard work to take someone who is an infant in Christ and grow them up. But we proclaim Jesus. We say, look to him. He's the example. He's the guide. He's the one that we need. And so we move people forward. What does that mean? It means that every man and every woman in this place, every man, every woman in this place, every one of us can grow up in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us can have the hope of the believer. Christ living in us. Moving, conforming, changing us to his image. And that is the goal of the church, my friends. And then Paul says, and he closes, 29, To this end I strenuously contend, I labor, is what the Greek says, I exhaust myself. For what? With all energy, so what? Christ, who powerfully works in me. He goes, I believe so much in this gospel that I'm willing to die for it. I believe so much in the gospel story, in the redemptive purpose of this. God, who became man to live among sinful people. Get that. That's the gospel. Doesn't that sound crazy? Almost a little bit erroneous. God, in his holiness, became man so he could live among man who was sinful and then redeem them. And Paul says, I believe so much in it that I'll not only die for it, but I'll labor, I'll exhaust for it. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, church, like that, this verse right there, 29, is the one who, it just ripped my heart out. Like that's what struck, because like I know that in this season, like I have a pulse of our church, and I know there are many of you that you've been serving and you keep serving for the sake of the gospel. And I know you're tired, like you're tired. Like it's just, it's hard work. And it's even more taxing and it's even more difficult when you have a building that's what, really, truly a third of the size that we need it to be. And so we have multiple services. And even now, if you don't understand, like the Saturday night service is disappointing as that might have been that we can't do Saturday night service. It is simply because we have so many people that are exhausted. We're stretched thin. And why do I say this? I want to encourage you. Would you keep pressing on? Would you keep running knowing that the work that we're called to is worth it? That, like, like for those of you that are in kids ministry, like you literally are, like you're contemplating, like I'm, I'm probably going to quit. Like I can't do this any longer. Like would you keep pressing on? Would you keep pouring into children, although it's difficult? 
for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of laboring in Christ, knowing that it's not in vain, knowing that it's not easy, knowing that it's, it's oftentimes tiresome and difficult, would you keep pressing on? That's what Paul says. Would you labor to the point of exhaustion? Do you got that? Like, I want you to know, like, it's, it's not easy. And I know that all of you are like, well, Brandon, it's real easy for you to say. All you do is prepare a sermon each week. You know what I mean? But let me explain something. My sermon preparation is not fit into the 40-hour week that I work. It's, it's extra. And look, it's, we're running, and we're, we're pressing on, and we're persevering. And, and all of us, we know, and you know, if you've been serving here for any amount of time, how difficult it is in the gospel. If, if there are some of you that you're in ministry outside of this context, I know how difficult it is for the gospel. Can I just say that it's wor- the gospel's worth it? The gospel's worth the exhaustion. The gospel's worth your tears. The gospel is worth your, to- your toilsome labor. It is worth the hardships. It is worth the persecution that you may face. It is worth you pressing on. Why? Because Christ lives in you. You got this? Christ lives in you. And so for that, we press on. And so let me explain something to you. The Jews had their Moses, and they looked to him, and they longed for him. Rome had their Caesar. France had their Napoleon. You have all these people. England had their Gladstone. America had their Washington. And do you know what the church has? We have one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And he's the one that we look to, and he's the one we run to, and he's the one we persevere for, knowing that in all things he holds everything together. And so he is the son of man. He is the one that allowed you to be adopted into his family. He is the one who is changing your life. He is the one who wants to radically transform you. And he's literally the one in which he said to his disciples, what? Deny yourself, take with the cross, and follow me. He's the one in which he wants you to die for. And so you're in here, and you're like, I don't know about dying for him yet. I'll tell you what, why don't you just start in serving him and then say, this thing's worth dying for. And so, men, I'm just to encourage you. Would you just raise up for your family? Would you lead well? Would you love well? Would you serve well knowing that you identify with Christ and his sufferings? Church, would we continue to toil and labor knowing that there are still people who need Jesus Christ? Like, like listen to me. Like, look at me. Please, everybody look at me. Do you realize that Van Zant County, over 70% of the people you run into at Walmart and at Brookshire's, as I look at them, I see a person and I see a name every time I check out and I wonder and I ask the question, do they go to church? And they don't, most likely. And they need the gospel story. They don't need some other church who has this hip fashion or some incredible lights or some loud music. They need Jesus Christ. And they need a church in which they belong to. People to love them and to listen to their story. Because listen, I don't know if you are like me, but I'm pretty jacked up. And I know that many of us are messed up. And we we have had things happen to us that we can't control. There are some of us in here that we've been through things that no one else knows our story. And listen, Jesus is enough for you. And that's why we keep pressing on. That's why we keep contending for the gospel. That's why we need you to be a part of what God is doing. Because you play a vital role in the church. And the church is the mystery that's been made known to us. But all the Old Testament saints never had it. That's pretty profound. I don't know about you, but that's pretty profound. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. That, Father, you just allow us to be a part of your story. And, Father, just as Paul said to the church in Philippi, whatever were gains to me, I now consider them lost for the sake of Christ.
considering everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus our Lord, in whose sake I've lost all things. I consider my life garbage that I may gain Christ, to be found in you, having a righteousness of my own. Not that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to know you. I want to know the power of your resurrection and to participate in your suffering. I want to become like you in your your death and somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that we've obtained this or that we've already arrived at our goal, but Lord, we press hold to take on hold of that of which Jesus Christ has taken a hold of us. So Lord, we forget what's behind and we strain towards what's ahead, pressing on to the goal to win the prize in which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Lord, we strive, we labor, we press on, we love, we serve, we live for you. We suffer for you because you suffered for us. And so, Lord, help us as we leave here to be co-laborers in the gospel. Help us to know that you are not hidden and that you can be known. And you've revealed yourself through Jesus Christ. Help us to know that you have allowed us to be a part of this great mystery that you call the church. A group of people who love and serve and devote their lives to you and to your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, it's worth it. And so help us be the church. Not go to church, not attend church, but be the church everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.